Good morning. We are a family of costume makers. We make our costumes. Um, so i got to talk about it a little bit since it's so recent. Uh, I want to tell you what my kids wore for Halloween. My oldest son, Timothy, for Halloween last night, chose to be the thorax of a Solenopsis Invicta. <clears throat> That's right, you heard me. That's how we roll in our house. This is a long word for the thorax of a red ant. Josh was the abdomen of this red ant. Ransom was the head of the red ant. Altogether, we had a nine-foot red ant that managed just barely to make it out our front door to about eight houses before the weight of the ant discouraged them and they came back. <clears throat> but it was a sight to see this uh, tape and spray-painted red ant ushering out the door with you know, slow down, speed up, uh, segments undulating. <laughs> and you may wonder where Grace fits in all of this. Well, Grace was a princess. So uh, my mom, Granny B, as she's known, she, you should have seen this image of her walking down the street with a Solenopsis Invicta in one hand and a princess in the other. <clears throat> it doesn't quite fit, but it's family. And it fit at that moment. It fits so well. Well, we're going to talk about another family this morning. We're going to talk about Abram and Lot. And I have trouble fitting Lot into Abram's story as well. I don't know if it's just me. But when you read the Bible, and when you read Genesis, and Lot shows up, there's... Part of this part of me that has a hard time making him work with the rest of the story. I don't know why he's there. At least I haven't. I have not, until recently, felt like I had a, a solid understanding as to why is Lot even part of the story. Why is he here? He's not. He's not uh, some great guy. He doesn't teach us any lessons. We're not better people for the words of Lot. He isn't even a kind of bridge character, you know, like the like Samuel. So Samuel, he bridges us between the, the, the judges and, and Saul and David. He's kind of a carry-along character that helps. He's not that. He's not some great character. He isn't David or he's not Paul. What is, what is Lot? Why is he there? It'll sound cheesy, but maybe he's like a princess with a red hair. Well, at least that's how I felt, and uh, I'm, I continually remind myself that God does not play around with his word. So there's no word here. There's no character here. There's no story here that just happens to be here. Of all the things God could say to us, he chose to say these very few things, not these very many things. So I've been thinking about Lot, and I've decided that, that uh, I have, I've got a reason why Lot is here. And so before we turn, we'll be in Genesis 13 this morning. Before we turn there, I want to talk a little bit about what I think Lot's purpose is in the story. Because I do think it's, it has some significance and some meaning that goes uh, beyond uh, what may readily appear. Now, I will admit, this is my interpretation. I'm not alone. But your faith is not going to live and die on this opinion. Nonetheless, here it is. 
I think that Lot is in this story because Lot is the male apparent heir of Abram. Let me say that again. I think the reason that Lot is in the story is because he is Abram's male heir. Now, I want to show you how I think this has happened. Now, this is uh, garnered from Genesis 11 and 24. This is where this information can be found. But Abram is one of three sons of Terah. That's in Genesis 11. <clears throat> he has two brothers. He is Nahor and Haran. Now, Haran and Nahor both have sons. Haran has Lot, and Nahor has another son who we'll, we'll find about later in Genesis 24. His name is Bethuel. Abraham, however, does not have a son. In fact, his wife is barren. Scripture says that Sarai is barren, and so he not only doesn't have a son, he has no children. Now, it's important to have a son in these ancient times because everything hung on being able to hold the land and the property and the name and the blood within the line of the, of the male heir. And so this is an issue. But something happens. If you read in, in Genesis 11, you hear that Haran passes away. He passes away, in fact, before the family leaves Ur. And so he passes away. Now we have an odd situation. We have a son with no father, and we have a father with no son. And from this point on, for the rest of Scripture, or at least for the rest of the story so far, what we find is that Lot is associated with Abram. Wherever Abram goes, Lot goes. And the reason I think this is occurring is because the family's trying to take care of itself. The family has concerns for Lot, and the family has concerns for Abram. And when you bring the two together, those concerns are in some way mitigated. Now, maybe that's just informational. Um, I, I do think it starts. To, it has some effect. If we start to think of, of Abram as walking around with Lot thinking Lot is the answer to the promise, well, that does start to give Lot a little bit more relevance to the story. Because if he's not the answer to the promise, then God has to get rid of him or do something with him. Or Lot has to do something with himself. But I think this is what's going on here. And maybe it doesn't, doesn't fit to us, but I think, I think this is worth looking at. Now, for those of us who know the rest of the story, we know that Lot is not the answer, right? When God says to Abram, come out, leave, I'll bless you, I'll make a great nation out of you. Those of us who have read the story know that the great nation is not Lot. Lot, in fact, never has a son. The right way. So we know what is in Lot. We know that God's plan is so much bigger than Lot. And, and I was, I'm thinking this has been a, a time of meditation for me this week to think about how often God's answer to our problem is so much better than our solution. I mean, I can just think of so many times in my life where, where we're just given circumstances. We have a hunch about what God wants to do in our life. We have an unction that this is where he wants us to go with our life, or that's what he wants us to do. We think that's about right. That's about as close as we get. We get about as close as leave your country, your homeland, and your father's household. We get there. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know how it's going to feel, but we get there, 
And from that point on, we're just kind of stepping out into the dark. And when we do that, we put the rest of the pieces of the puzzle together with the things around us. So I think essentially what Abram has done is he says, the Lord is going to take me and make me a nation. He goes, well, I have a lot. I don't think that's sinful. I think that if it is, we all do it an awful, awful lot. I think it's just normal for us to think, this is where God's going. I think this is how he's going to get here. But what I think is so awesome is when we get to where we're going, we see how much better God's idea was than ours. God's promise is so much better than Lot. This idea of a nation, it's better than Isaac. It's better than Israel. It's the family of God. It's the church. It's Christians. It's salvation. I mean, how much better could it be than Lot? I thought that was pretty good. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis 13. I I wanted to do 13 and 14. I've I've cowered, and we're just going to do 13 this Sunday. While you're turning there, I want to just summarize the back half of chapter 12. So the Lord asked Abram to leave. Abram does under the promise that the Lord will bless him, make him a nation, make him a blessing to others, and that the world through him would be blessed. He leaves. He goes to this land. God, he enters the land of Canaan. God says, this is it. This will be the land of your, of, of your children. Your nation will be this area. A famine hits. He migrates to Egypt so that he will survive. In that area, he fears for his life. In the process, he pawns his wife off to Pharaoh so that he preserves his life. And in a very disappointing event, um, it all comes to the forefront and Pharaoh gives Sarah back to him and asks him to leave. Verse 20 of the 12th chapter says, Then Pharaoh gave orders about it. Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. I do want to say, by the way, that there is an image that's painted by this trip to Egypt that should not be readily ignored, which is this, that due to a famine, Abram goes to Egypt. Have we heard this somewhere else? Due to a famine, he goes to Egypt. Sarah becomes captive to Pharaoh Pharaoh incurs plagues, blesses them, and asks them to leave. Back to the promised land. I think this is the first time we're seeing the images of Exodus kind of being echoed through the life of Abram. But this is what it happens, and it brings us here to the 13th chapter. So let me read uh, verses 1 through 7. It's page 8 if you have a Bible in your seat. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in gold and silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support 
them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. Now here's a quick map. It won't be up too long. I want you to get a feel of... uh, Did the map already come? No, okay. There should be a map. There it is. So Egypt's down in the southwest. I just, for those of you who are pictorial, I want you to have a feel. They've come up. The Negev is this big area to the south. It means wilderness or desert. They spent some time in there, and then they migrated back up to where you see Bethel and Ai. His altar is somewhere between those towns. They're not far apart. That's where he's living. Hebron will come up later on in the chapter, so you can ignore that for now. And that's where I think Sodom is. So that just gives you an idea of kind of the geography of the situation here. But this is what goes on. They leave. They leave Egypt and they have great wealth, which is quite remarkable because they went because of famine. So everybody else after the famine in the whole region is poorer and they walk out after having this big boon. And I think for some of us, this can be a problematic truth that Abram goes to Egypt He lies, he trades his wife to Pharaoh, and at the end of the day, he comes out of Egypt blessed. I think sometimes when we read this, this won't be the only time we read a disappointing scenario with Abram. So we're going to kind of deal with it all right now. By the way, it almost always has to do with the mistreatment of women. And I hope at some time in this week we can spend more time on it. But as you examine these passages, which can be so hard, whether it's the abuse of Sarah here or under Abimelech or the abuse of Hagar or the dysfunction of Lot's daughters, whatever it is, or the trading of Lot's daughters in Sodom, wherever this abuse is coming, what I ask you to do is as you're reconciling the problem, examine God in all of this. Find out his role. And I think you will find that God is not problematic. We are. But he is so good in all this. But there's this scene where Abram gives his wife over. And next thing you know, he's walking out of Egypt blessed. And I think, I think sometimes it's hard for us to really marvel at Abram because of these kinds of scenarios. So I want to start with two ideas, or just remind us of two things as we think about Abram. First of all, God does not call holy people to his service. He makes those who follow him holy. This is what we mean when we say grace. God uses grace to make people holy. And we should remind ourselves of this when we think about Abram. Abram isn't perfect. He's full of grace. And God is working on him. I think there are a few of us here who hope that when we go to heaven, we get what we deserve. And we would ask the Lord, don't give me grace, give me what I've earned I don't think there's anyone here who would say that. I think we're all benching on the fact that God will overlook what we've done in Egypt and give us grace. And so I would encourage you to give Abram grace. And this is the second thing. And these these two themes, um, I think, are really important as we continue to set out along Abram's story. This is not really the story of Abraham. It's the life of Abraham. This is not really the story of Abraham. This is, the, this is God's story of redemption. 
So God's big story of redemption has sections in it. And in some sections, he happens to use certain characters. So right now we're looking at the chapter of God's story of redemption that happens to involve Abraham. And when I say that, what I mean to say is God's going somewhere. He's using Abraham, but he's trying to get to a place. He's trying to tell us something. He is not primarily concerned with the character at hand. He's concerned with where he's going, which means he wants Abram to be blessed when he goes in the promised land. So Abram's going to be blessed when he goes in the promised land. That's it. God wants something. God's going to have something. It's sheep and it's cattle and it's goats and it's tents. Abram's going to have it because God's telling a bigger story. All of these characters, all of these disconnected stories, as we feel throughout the Old Testament, they feel disconnected when we, when we don't realize the major direction they're headed. They're not about the character. The characters are about the big story. Until you get to Matthew. And then the big story is about the character. But right now, God's moving somewhere. And he's moving somewhere with Abram. So Abram's going to be blessed. No matter what he does, he's going to be blessed. He could mess up all the time. And he's going to be blessed. And I would say that even about us. If we're in faith, we are going to be blessed. We can mess up all the time. And if God's telling his story through us, we're going to be blessed. It may not be what we think, but we'd be blessed. So they come out wealthy. And then they travel. They go through the Negev. They come up to Bethel and Ai. Back to the altar. Abram calls out to the Lord. And it's at this time that a problem arises. There's too much wealth. There's too much stuff for the area they have. We say today, mo money, mo problems, I guess is the way we say it today. That's what they got. They got mo problems because they have too much money. Not enough room. And after all, they're sharing it. It says they're, they're living with the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And so we have this problem that arises. And this is how Abram solves it. Read verses 8 through 13 with me. So Abram says to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Well, the time has come. They need to separate, go their own ways. Seems like it's not working out between the two of them. I don't know whether it's that it's not working out or that it's worked out so well because they have so much stuff. But either way, there's not enough room for the two of them. And it's time to go their separate ways. And it isn't like Lot fights this idea. You don't find in Scripture Abram saying, look, it's getting hard for us to live together. 
How about you go your own way? Lot doesn't say, oh no, far be it from me to be on my own. Let me stay with you. Lot doesn't say that. Abram says, let's go our separate ways. You pick your land. Lot goes, I'll take that one. That one over there. Well, I was going to finish my... Ah, that one over there. Pretty green. I'll get my stuff. That's kind of the impression. Now, Lot doesn't sleep on it. He doesn't go build an altar and pray about it. He takes the land and he chooses this plain by the Jordan River. It says it's the valley, this beautiful, lush valley of the, of the Jordan, which is green and very vibrant. And it has a few cities in it, like Sodom. which leaves Abram Canaan. Now, we shouldn't think, by the way, that it's an either-or. It isn't like you have to take the Jordan or you take Canaan. This is a valley. So a lot could have said, I'll take northern Canaan. I'll take northwestern Canaan. I'll take anywhere in Canaan. And Abram would have gone anywhere else in Canaan. So I don't want us to think that it was either you take Canaan. It's not regional. This is an environmental decision. Lot looks out and he sees this lush valley. And he's attracted to it, and he, and he calls to it, and he selects it. And I don't want to be un, unnecessarily harsh on Lot. You know, maybe he was just trying to get out of Abram's hair, but I don't think that's the issue. I think that Lot is ready to make his own way in the world. I think he's wealthy enough now that he's ready to spread his wings and go on his own two feet and experience the world. Make a name for himself. I don't think he needs to be underneath Abram anymore. In fact, you notice earlier Abram says, look, brother. He uses the word brother to his nephew. There's this kind of idea. He's given Lot elevated status. Almost though he recognizes that Lot, it would just as soon not be nephew Lot anymore. Look, brother. Go your own way. Pick your land. Make your living. Go your own way. And Lot does. And I think Lot is drawn to the place with the most earthly potential. He looks out and he sees the place that has the most earthly potential. The place that solves the most earthly problems. That's what I think Lot does. Now if I had been Lot... I think I would have been, I hope, if we had been Lot, I don't want to say it's me, if we had been Lot, I hope we would have been a little more thoughtful. And what I mean by that is, if we had been Lot, I hope at this moment, at this conversation, besides Bethel and Ai, I hope we would have realized that the whole reason we're there is because our uncle was approached by some great invisible God who said, leave and come here. As I'm processing this offer from Abram, I hope that we, if we were Lot, we would have said, first thing is, the whole reason I'm here is because my uncle was driven here by God. And I hope that we would be thoughtful enough to think that Abram, our uncle has been devoutly worshiping this God. It isn't like he thought he heard a voice once. Everywhere our uncle goes, he stops, he sets up his tent, and he does what? He 
he builds an altar. He stops, he sets up a tent, he builds an altar. The famine hits, he has to leave his country. He builds no altar out there because it's not his land. What happens? He returns from the famine. Where does he go? He goes right back to the place where God gave him and he worships at the altar. I hope if I were lot that I would have observed that. That somehow some great invisible God has moved my uncle to come here. Somehow my uncle is fostering a real relationship with this great invisible God. And I hope we would be thoughtful enough to realize that through it all we're blessed. We're blessed. That through the fact that my uncle is obeying this invisible God, the fact that my uncle is pursuing this invisible God, the fact that my uncle is returning to this invisible God and worshiping this invisible God, throughout all of that, despite the fact that everybody else is poor because of famine, we have too much stuff. I hope I would have been a little more thoughtful than Lot. Because if I was, I don't think I would have been so ready to leave. I don't think I would have stepped a foot away from Abram until I had some assurances like, how do I know that the God you have that's taking care of you will take care of me? Can I build one of those altars? Can I pray to that God? It doesn't seem like Lot has any of those concerns. Lot has concerns like I have stuff and I want to preserve more stuff. I see this valley that is well watered and is well kept. I have this stuff and I want to take it and I want to make more stuff. And to me, this is a, this is a telltale ingredient of someone who has been around the faith but has no relationship with God at all. Someone who's grown up in a religious family, who has religious virtues, who has been around the religious blessings of Christ and yet has no relationship They have kind of inherited the goodness of God because they're traveling along with a godly person. They're there with somebody who believes. They've experienced the blessings of God because they're with someone who believes, but they have no relationship whatsoever with the invisible God who's giving all of this. And so they don't think twice about leaving. I think this is the story of 20th century America. I think the 20th century is a period of Ameri- where Americans poured into churches because their family just did that. That's what 20th century Americans did. They went to church because their families went to church. By and large, no relationship with God. And then the 20th century stretched its wings and it's migrated towards a distant valley. And this is where we are today. Nobody's here by accident. Nobody in this church is here by accident. There's a reason why this church started out Southern and Baptist, and there's a reason now why it looks Italian and Hokessin. It's because it started in the 20th century, and we're in the 21st century now. Nobody's here by accident. You know, we are a church that has more on Sunday than our membership. If you call a cultural Southern Baptist church down south and tell them that, they will fall out of their seat. If you call a cultural Catholic church up north and tell them that, they will fall out of their seat. Because we have entered into an area where if you, weren't, if you don't have a relationship with God, you've left the church. 
You've got no reason to be in the church. Hanging around a few altars, growing up with churchy kinsfolk does not substitute for a relationship with God. If that's all you have, you'll either migrate away for greener pastures or you'll migrate away for Sodom or you'll migrate away for greener pastures with Sodom. So how do you know you have a relationship with God? Here's a question. This is one way we might know. We should be devoutly concerned about what God thinks about what we think. That's one way to know you might have a relationship with God. If you're devoutly concerned about what God thinks about what you're thinking about, that's a sign that you have a relationship with God. When when you want to do something, but before you do it, you go, what does God think about this? How am I going to deal with this when I lay down at night? How am I going to deal with this when I wake up in the morning, when I'm by myself on my commute, or when I'm alone at home in my quiet time? Can I stare the Lord in the face on this? If you have those experiences, if you have that sentiment, chances are you have some kind of relationship with God. Do you want to know what he has to say? Even if you're not so good at reading this Bible, do you wish it gave you answers? That to me sounds like a person who wants to build an altar. They just don't know how to do it all that well. And I would say, that's a good start. Are you asking questions? Do you know how to pray? Have you tried to pray? And when you pray, do you listen? Do you say the prayer and walk away? Do you say the prayer and turn the radio on? Or do you say the prayer and wonder three hours later, I wonder if God has answered? Or think back to the Lord or meditate on the Lord or be silent and hear? Or wonder continually, I have spoken to the Lord so he will answer. And expect an answer. Even if his answer is no, do you have an expectation of receiving a word? These are the things that Abram does. These are the things that Lot does not do. Abram has a relationship with the Lord and Lot leaves the promised land. It's one of the only occasions in Scripture where someone voluntarily walks from the west to the east across the Jordan. I mean, it's tragic in my mind. It's tragic. We write, there are, there are spirituals written about one day crossing over the Jordan into the promised land, and Lot took his family the other way. Relationship is the only thing that keeps us in the Lord's promise. Read with me the final verses of this passage. Fourteen to eighteen. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, "Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk." through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. 
Now I began the, 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 the more serious part of this message suggesting that the purpose of Lot was to be the male heir. That's the reason he's in the story. I think if you think of it that way, it makes God's entrance in verse 14 so much more meaningful and it makes so much more sense. Because when Abram finally says, Lot, you need to go your own way, you have to realize what he's doing. And Abram's life, he's making himself a problem. He's giving up a known for an unknown. He's giving something back to the Lord. Go, Abram. He's saying to his male heir, the apparent male heir, go. I, I, you're out of my protection. You're out of my fold. I don't know what's going to happen. You're going east. You're leaving the promised land. You never really worshipped. I don't know what's going on inside of you. I have no idea, but if you're the nation, just go. I feel like Abram's, this part of what Abram's saying, and it says, this is why in 14 it says, and as Lot's leaving, after he leaves, what happens? The Lord comes over to Abram and says, relax. You're still so blessed. He says, in fact, your nation is going to be like the dust of the earth. That's just so good. It's so good of the Lord. It's so good of the Lord to know that when we let go, when we can let go of things, we can trust that he'll come in the behind us and say, peace, you're so blessed. You're so full of promise. I've taken care of everything. I want to, in the close, I want to take a few ideas that have kind of floated this morning and last Sunday. I want to kind of bring them together. This morning we have this idea of Abram staying in the promised land and Lot leaving. We have last Sunday there was this notion of you have to be willing to leave for the Lord. You have to be willing to leave. And there's a language or a sentiment that comes out of leave language or leave talk or purpose talk or God has a role and a hope for your life. Anytime that, that kind of language occurs, it motivates people who are unsettled and it makes people who are settled uncomfortable. Because when I say, the Lord says you have to leave, if you're not ready to leave, or if you don't know what you're supposed to leave, if you're not, not feeling leavish this day, now you sit and go, what am I supposed to leave? How do I deal with leaving? I feel like I've just arrived. And if you are a person who's unsettled, whether it's for a righteous reason or an unrighteous reason, and I say, God wants you to leave, he's got a role for your life, you're like, yes! And you're ready to go wherever. But let's look at what happens to Abram. Because that kind of language, and I do think the scripture is very purpose-driven, that God is very purpose-driven. I do not think it equates to Indiana Jones' adventure. I think it can be very, very humble. So look at Abram here. This is the great, here's the great adventure he does, he does do one big leave. God says leave, and he leaves. For the rest of his life, you know what his job is? Live. Live in Canaan. That's God's instruction to him. Hey, come here. This is yours also. You can live here. And if you want to go there, you can. Because it's yours. But you don't have to go there. Because it's yours, but there's yours too. So just Live. And so for, essentially for the rest of Abram's life, 
His purpose-driven life is to live. And wherever he lives, to build an altar. And wherever he builds an altar, it's to call upon the Lord. And whenever he calls upon the Lord, he listens. That is his purpose-driven life. And I don't want us to think that we have to leave to leave, or we have to stay to stay. We can stay and leave, and we can leave and stay. All of this is spiritual. All of this gets to the heart of, you need to do whatever you have to do to be in God's promised land. And wherever you're going, you should be building altars. And you ought to be always ready to move, but completely happy to stay if it be God's will. Lot seems like he was more than ready to leave because he was choosing land that seemed to have the most human potential. I think Abram is just concerned about being somewhere near an altar of the Lord. Amen.